You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from today, the 9th of November. And on the show, we looked at health insurance premiums because apparently they have soared by as much as 35% in the last few months. But why is that? Well, we found out with broker Stephen McLaren. Plus, we also looked at how those increasing premiums are having an impact on setup costs for smaller companies. That was with Neil Petch, the chairman of VirtuZone. Meanwhile, the actors' union at SAG-AFTRA says it has agreed a tentative deal with the Hollywood studios to end a strike that started back in July. We got the latest on that with entertainment correspondent Reid Alexander. And we looked at the viability of the four-day working week as future of work researchers suggest it could be the easiest way to improve the equality of pay and status for women. We spoke to expert Dr. Mansour Sumro, and as an inclusion summit kicks off in Abu Dhabi, we looked at what the UAE needs to do to improve the legal standing of women in the country and the workplace. Meanwhile, we found a use for all those shells from the oysters that Dubai's fine diners have been quaffing. Ramy Murray, the founder of Dibba Bay Oysters, talked us through his latest eco-friendly plans. And Mark Archer joined us on the line with all the latest from the Cricket World Cup. As I often do, I'm going to start uh, this programme with a question. Have you noticed that your health insurance premiums have gone up? It might be that you've got no idea what your health insurance costs. I have to admit, I have no idea what mine costs because... I'm married and um, my husband has a contract uh, with a law firm. And as a consequence, I'm just part of the package, pretty much, as are the kids. Um, And we get everything covered. And I have no idea what we cost that law firm. Um, But if you are freelance or if you work for a small business or if you run a small business, then you are probably pretty aware of that cost. And certainly, when I looked at insuring our uh, housekeeper, our nanny. Um, I, you know, you can get the sort of standard nanny insurance, which is about six hundred dirhams. But we wanted to do a bit more than that, and so I looked at how much it would cost for her to have the same sort of protection that I have. And you know, you're floating around the six thousand dirham mark, so it, it's already pretty pricey. Uh, and of course, often that doesn't include pre-existing conditions. Now, uh, for those, uh, and, and, and so intriguingly, it does sound like. Unfortunately, that might have gone up even more because um, the premiums are soaring. In fact, a recent report in the Collegiate Times suggests that nearly a dozen companies have increased their premiums by up to 35% in the last two months. Why the last two months? What's been going on? Uh, Okay, we wanted to find out. We didn't know the answer ourselves. So I'm delighted to say we're joined in the studio now by Stephen McLaren. He is Director of Corporate Solutions for Seven Insurance Brokers. He is a friend of Dubai Eye. I stole him off the business breakfast. I might as well admit it now. Uh, Stephen, lovely to have you join us in the studio. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Really good to have you here. Have you noticed health insurance premiums going up as as a man in the industry? I certainly haven't seen them going down uh, and definitely they're going up. I mean, it's um, there's a lot of factors too as why they're going up. I mean, you mentioned a dozen companies have increased the rates. It will be down to most of them are using maybe some companies like insurancemarket.ae and they're all based on a, a tabular table 
And if one goes up, then they need them all to go up. So maybe they've been speaking to each other. I don't know if that's going on. But if one moved, they wouldn't get any more business. So there's a shift there. We've got to try and remember that insurance companies, the majority of them here are trying to make some money. And what does that tell you? They're not making a lot of money. I know that on the medical side. So people are using it and spending a lot of money in medical insurance. That's the crux of the problem. Do you think premiums are going up by as much as 35% though? That is a big number. It's a big number because they're losing money. You know, and I think there's a lot of people visiting doctors too frequently. Uh, Maternity seems to be a bit more happening now. um, And that's where there's a lot of high claims. There's a lot of complications, a lot of too posh to push, shall we see C-sections happening. And that's where the high costs can happen. And a lot of the increased premiums are happening in maternity for females as well. Do you think that post-COVID, we've become a bunch of hypochondriacs? I think that's probably a factor, yeah. I mean, there was a, there was a dip, a small dip in insurance premiums during COVID because people just weren't going to the doctor. And that's an important point because what were they doing? Ah. Yeah, they managed to still stay alive. So what's changed? They were using telehealth. It reached about 35% of all visits were telehealth. So I think that's a factor where it's a very big problem to try and get people encouraged to use telehealth. It's still not happening as much as it should here. But that's a way of convenience, reducing time, not getting the extra tests that you probably need. Sorry, don't need rather. Um, So there's various things that you can do. So COVID dipped. Why do people still alive? Why are they still okay? I've thought of another possibility, which is that people didn't go to the doctor during COVID and therefore there's a sort of a bit like revenge travel. (laughs) We've got sort of revenge healthcare in that people didn't go to the doctor for various sort of slightly smaller or even quite major ailments because they were worried about going into a healthcare environment. And now for the last year or so, they have been and they've been catching up. And as a consequence, the insurance companies have been given a bit of a shock. I mean, that is totally theoretical. I have nothing to base it on other than my own (laughs) thoughts. But I suppose it's conceivable. It's possible. Very subjective, but conceivable. Yeah. So uh, are they going up? uh, Are the premiums going up for any particular demographic that you've noticed? That survey you're talking about in the Collegiate Times will be hinting towards more individuals and families and some small companies where they have a set rate for a certain age band. And that's where it's happening. Larger companies, you alluded to your husband's scheme and a solicitor's firm, that's probably going to be a claims rated scheme. So they will go up by whatever your group claims during the policy year. Predominantly, it's during the policy year, a little bit's maybe previous years, if you've been with them, depending on the insurer. So it's really down to it's indirectly the employer's own, the employee's own money. And if they use it wisely, they will sustain the cover. But there's few companies improving cover. Most are reducing it in terms of what you can use the medical policy for. It's really interesting to sort of get into the nitty gritty of how the insurance companies come up with their premiums. Am I right to think there is a sort of economy of scale? If you're a big multinational, then you're going to be able to negotiate a lower fee. I would say that's a trend. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's more so. But then the small and medium sized companies, therefore, you know, the companies that arguably can't afford higher premiums are getting hit by them. Proportionately, the premiums will be higher. So whenever I see a census, I'll be giving myself an indication of what I think it will be. And I'm nearly, you know, pretty accurate where it will be. When you've got large cancer claims in a large scheme, that's smoothed out a little bit compared to a small scheme. I mean, I'm looking at one right now where it's a 99% increase. And that's simply only 55 people. It's simply because there's been four maternity claims during the year. So, so it's not maternity. really insurance. 
maternity yeah. is pricey. Well, especially because, of course, people are, you're quite right, choosing to have C-sections more now. And as a consequence, mm. they cost a lot more than a, a sort of, in inverted commas, natural birth. I think we'll come on that point. You've just put that there. Choose to have a C-section. The reality is you're not allowed to choose to have a C-section. And what doctors may well do is put it through its normal delivery or it's essential. So it's a complication. Whereas people might be saying, I really want a C-section and that's not meant to be covered by the insurance. That I hadn't realised that. That's interesting. That's an excellent point you just made there. That's what's going on. Again, in my anecdotal evidence. Well, yeah, we're we're talking all anecdotal at the moment because no one is giving us any sort of uh, proper figures except the numbers. And we do know that the premiums are going up. We have got a sort of... I wonder whether we're getting an ageing population here uh, to a certain extent. Are you talking about me? (laughs) Ageing. Not being pointed in any way at all, I must emphasise. But there was, you know, there was a sort of legacy case here in the UAE where, for example, young people would come out and maybe they might get married out here and they might carry on working to, you know, for the first few years of their professional life and married life. But then they would go home now we're seeing people staying for their whole lives, essentially, all the way up until retirement and every now and then afterwards. You know, it, realistically, between the age of 50 and 60 rather than 30 and 40, do you end up with more expensive health claims, don't you? Absolutely. You've got more pre-existing conditions. If you've got one, be it diabetes, if you have two, if you have three, then these are chronic conditions that are going to hit the medical insurance claim spend. Absolutely. Can you shop around? Still. You can still shop around. The problem is, is if you've got the pre-existing conditions, if you're looking as an individual or a small SME scheme, which I know Neil will be talking about, then if you've got the pre-existing conditions where you have to complete a medical application form, which is just medical information, it's exposed. So you have to shop around carefully. There are some insurers out there like MetLife will be in certain sizes will not ask those questions. And that's, I'm not promoting myself here, but that's where you come to a broker and do the shopping around. So you will go out Go fishing and find out what what deals people can get. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a very, very interesting subject. And of course, it is a key component to living out here in the UAE. If you don't have health insurance, then you really are in a very uh, sticky position. Uh, Stephen McLaren, it's been fantastic getting into the sort of details of health insurance premiums. Thank you so much for taking the time Most to join welcome. us. Always good to see you. Stephen McLaren there, uh, Director of Corporate Solutions for Seven Insurance Brokers. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Yeah, we're talking about the soaring costs of health insurance premiums on the programme today. Asking you whether you've noticed yours go up. Lots of messages coming in. Finn says that she's just had two insurance issues. She's had a home insurance premium increasing by a third. And then health insurance was quoted um, according to incorrected procedures. There was a suggestion that that they've been sort of trying to do her over on that as well. So Finn's had double insurance issues. And we've just heard from Stephen McLaren, who is Director of Corporate Solutions for Seven Insurance Brokers, uh, that he has seen premiums soaring, especially for... um, people who've had maternity costs. He'd seen the, um, the, the, the 
but ultimately the premiums for women go up notably. And also it's happening in particular for smaller companies, which, you know, who don't have that economy of scale. Recent report in the College Times suggesting nearly a dozen insurance companies increasing their premiums by up to 35% just in the last two months. And it's really got us thinking, you know, what with corporate tax and, and other fees increasing in the UAE, are these hitting small and medium-sized businesses in the pocket? Are they finding it more expensive to run, more expensive to even set up in the Emirates? Well, there is only one man to ask about small and medium-sized businesses and set-up costs, and that is Neil Petch, the chairman of VirtuZone. He's getting a double whammy on Dubai Eye today, aren't you, Neil? Because you're going to be hosting Starting Up at 1pm. I am being double whammed. Good morning, Georgia. Amazing to have you join us, Neil. And, and of course, you're very much... Um, is sort of swimming in the ecosystem of, of small and medium-sized businesses. Have you heard complaints about insurance costs going up from your uh, colleagues from, from the companies that you're helping? Yeah, you know, I really feel the pain here. It's, it's a little bit of a perfect storm, Georgia. We had COVID, which meant that a lot of people didn't get treated for pre-existing conditions. We've got Dubai booming, inflation happening, and, and people having to pay higher salaries. So if you go to Mediclinic, you're going to pay 500, 550 dirhams just to shake the hand of the doctor. One of the problems is that it's uh, medical help is so accessible in Dubai, it's so easy to go and see a doctor. So, you know, the, the cost, there, there are more visits happening. And at the same time, the price has gone up. So this is a perfect storm for the insurers. So, yes, premiums are going up. And yes, it's a pain for our customers. And obviously, what we at VirtuZone are always trying to do is solve that pain. So how do you do that? One of the ways is to actually work with your staff to make them more healthy. So sports tournaments and getting checked for your for your blood sugar level and all of that sort of thing. Uh, it's cliched, but it's true. It works because if you have, you know, 200 employees and 200 employees spend 500 dirhams, it's quite a lot of money. And the last thing is using tech. So we've partnered, for example, with a couple of great insurance firms with Petra and GIG. And what they do is that they encourage us to try and just as I'm talking to you now on, on Teams, they encourage us to speak over a video to doctors. And the cost of a consultation there is up to from zero to 100 dirhams instead of 500. So over time, that's going to affect how much you spend as a company and thus what your premium is the next year. That is fantastic advice. And, you know, I've never heard, heard of it, of companies trying to keep their employees more healthy. I've never considered that they're doing that to try and obviously bring their insurance claims down, that it makes perfect sense. Not only do you get greater reliability, greater employee engagement in the workforce, but, you know, you're saving money at the same time. How about these other costs that are being faced by small and medium-sized businesses? Now, I know that you've got a big focus on corporation tax at VirtuZone at the moment. Do you think it's people putting people off starting their own companies? Yeah, I think it's a, an education thing, which is there are 550,000 small businesses in the UAE. And the UAE government recognizes that it's those businesses that provide the lifeblood for the economy to improve, which is why corporate tax, when it does come in, it is the most lenient set of regulations for the startup sector that exists anywhere in the world. 
And so those 550,000, probably 95% of them are not going to have to pay any corporate tax. But they don't know that. Right at the moment, they're scared. They're probably going to have to pay. They might be fined. All they've got to do is register, register for corporate tax, get a stamp that says we're not turning over more than 3 million dirhams. We're not making more than $100,000 profit. And you're not going to have to pay tax. And I do want to answer that medical thing again. If you provide great insurance for your staff, you're going to be able to recruit better staff. You've got better staff, more motivated staff because you're playing in paddle tournaments or whatever it might be. And you've, you've got the opposite of a perfect storm. So be proactive entrepreneurs out there because, yes, it is, you know, there is a pain. There are increased prices, but there's stuff that we can do about it. Can I just very quickly, I've got about a minute left with you, talk about other fees that uh, that sort of entrepreneurs are facing. Because if you've got your higher insurance premiums, you've got this corporation tax, although you're right, you know, they don't have to pay it until they're making a lot of money. Are there any other sort of sneaky fees that have been introduced recently? Yes. There are. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there, there are. One of the biggest pain points that our customers have is is banking is is firstly getting a bank account and then getting access to money most uh, uh, um, first world economies it's relatively easy to get loans to grow your business um, it's much more difficult here so again what's being done about it you know there are there are certain banks uh, in in the ua that are not particularly small business friendly They'll take you, uh, and, and there have been some examples uh, uh, recently where people were onboarded paying very small amounts of money on a monthly basis, and suddenly those fees were, were raised by literally a factor of 10 with a letter overnight. Now, that's stupid. The UAE does so many things right, and it doesn't get it all right, but where, where it's doing it absolutely right is look at what uh, WIO Bank are doing. Look at what Mashrek uh, Neo uh, are, are doing. Look at what Zane Bank are doing. So there's a, a bunch of digital banks that recognize that they need to keep the costs down for the customer, that that typical customer is not going to maintain a, a huge uh, uh, balance, but shouldn't be discriminated against. So our job, again, at VirtuZone is, is to try and show the banks that, that our customers, we've got more data on them, so it's safer to use them. And so when you register for corporate tax, for example, you're opening your books up to an accountant, and that means that you're actually less of a risky proposition, which means you should be able to get services like this more cheaply. Really interesting, Neil. Fantastic to speak to you. Thank you very much for joining us early today on Dubai Eye 103.8. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Right, let's turn our attention now to a breaking news story that uh, out of Hollywood basically broke a little bit earlier this morning uh, because the actors' union SAG-AFTRA... I always struggle with that. There's too many consonants. SAG-AFTRA. They say they, they'd, they'd agreed a tentative deal with the Hollywood studios to end that strike that uh, basically started all the way back in July. Uh, officials say they have reached an agreement with the Alliance of Motion Picture and TV Producers and there was, an ana- there was a unanimous vote that took place literally just hours ago. 
The deal brings an end to the 118-day shutdown in the TV and film industries, which basically saw actors come out on strike calling for better pay and better safeguards on the use of artificial intelligence. But what does the agreement mean for those actors and how quickly is the industry going to recover? Well, to find out, a short time ago, I sat down with Reid Alexander. He is the entertainment business correspondent at The Insider and he gave me his reaction. It is over after 118 days. The Screen Actors Guild negotiators on behalf of SAG-AFTRA, the 160,000 members of the Actors Union, uh, the negotiators have reached a deal with the Hollywood studios and streamers. And that means that uh, very shortly, in a matter of hours, the strike will have officially ended. I mean, that is just going to be the hugest relief for all the actors in the industry in Hollywood. That's exactly right. This is a tremendous moment for Hollywood's actors who have been on strike now for nearly four months, and they still have to go through the final rite of passage, uh, which is namely that they have to vote to ratify this uh, particular agreement officially. That will mean that it's officially been adopted. Right now it's in the status of what's called a temporary or tentative agreement. But nevertheless, uh, the negotiating bargaining committees uh, that are running the negotiating process for SAG-AFTRA are empowered to at least end the strike even before that ratification vote. So now there are going to be celebrations. There are quite literally going to be celebrations and parties across Los Angeles. You know, this has been really historic and so many people have won a lot in the course of this fight now with this deal, but also lost a lot in the way of lost income and jobs and opportunities and even lost dreams about being in the entertainment industry during a time that's been really punishing for creative people. So this is a big win. This is a big victory for Hollywood at large. And I think the industry can finally exhale and take a deep breath uh, after so many months of so much turmoil. So this is a major, major moment for Hollywood's actors. Well, it is a major moment as long as the deal is a good one. Do you know yet what provisions, what concessions the studios have made in order to bring actors back to work? SAG-AFTRA has said that it's not going to release details of what exactly is in this deal until uh, a senior group of uh, committee members can review uh, the document, uh, which is going to happen on November the 10th. That's going to be the national board. And after that time, more details, more provisions will be released. But what they have said, what we do know in a statement in just the last few hours has been, quote, in a contract valued at over $1 billion, we have achieved a deal of extraordinary scope that includes what they call above pattern minimum compensation increases, unprecedented provisions for consent and compensation that will protect members from the threat of AI, and for the first time is a streaming participation bonus. So what is all of that jargon? What does that actually mean? Well, whilst they are keeping it close to the vest, exactly what they've hammered out, it means that they have very strong protections against artificial intelligence, 
which was a major issue in the course of this fight, whether actors could have their images or what we call their likenesses scanned and then used in, you know, perpetuity in television or film without their being compensated or without their approval. Uh, it sounds like they have won what they say for the first time is a participation bonus. So, uh, you know, essentially a stake of the pot of gold for actors who participate in really highly watched shows on big streamers like Netflix or Disney Plus or Amazon Prime or Apple TV Plus, presumably. So, you know, in addition to that, you know, minimum compensation increases will establish higher salary floors for performers. And again, whilst it's unclear exactly to what degree or to what tune, the actors negotiators made clear from day one they were never going to accept anything less than what they called a stellar deal. And while that is typical union rhetoric, they fought to the bitter end here. And uh, I am not going to be surprised if what we end up seeing are some very significant wins that they have earned when we actually can start pouring over the percentages and the numbers that are going to come out in the coming days. Obviously, we'll get more on those as soon as they come out. Reed Alexander, entertainment business correspondent at Insider. Fantastic to have him join us on the radio. And it's worth saying uh, that when it came to the writers' strikes, those writers went back to work within hours. So I imagine that is the scenario with the actors as well. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. You might have heard earlier this week on our programme, we talked about a survey that placed the UAE at 22nd in the world in an index on women's rights. Uh, Now the Emirates was ranking highly for things like employment, community safety, uh, there was financial inclusion, oh, share of parliamentary seats was a really big one, and then access to justice. But, you know, if you wanted to improve that number, what if the easiest way to do that was uh, to reduce the working week to four days? I reckon we'd all of a sudden have quite a lot of men on board. A lot of women on board, obviously. But if we said, oh, yeah, well, if you do a four-day working week, it's going to improve women's equality to men, I think the chaps would be coming out and and voting for it as well. Well, certainly the recipient of the latest Nobel Prize in economics, Professor Claudia Golden, now she researches the gender pay gap. She reckons the current disparity between men and women can mainly be attributed to childcare responsibilities. And if you only work four days a week, then potentially... That extra day could be used to catch up on those responsibilities. Now, worth mentioning that women working full time year round are paid 84 percent of what men are paid. So there is still this, you know, quickly do the math, 16 percent pay gap. Okay, so why would a four day working week make that much of a difference? Let's find out. Joining us now is Dr. Mansour Sumro. He is a future of work researcher at the Teesside University's International Business School based in the United Kingdom, which means he's got up horrendously early in the morning to talk to us. Thank you very much indeed, Dr. Sumro. Uh, Sumro rather. Lovely to have you join us. Okay, tell me, what is this case for the four day working week that, that researchers are getting so excited about? Thank you, Georgia. Uh, morning. Yeah, in fact, early morning. Yeah, so this uh, this case of four-day working week, or as we say, um, shorter working week, uh, that this, this this has been a, a discussion um, s- since some time now. But um, the, the piece that I 
published in Fortune recently, it what I've tried to project is that a four-day week, which is a reduced working week, has a strong connection in helping us, uh, in, has, has a strong connection with the gender pay gap or gender equality. Now, how does it actually work? As, as you mentioned about the research by Professor Claudia, which met, uh, where she studied this gender pay gap, and uh, the findings suggest that, you know, the, the current earnings gap between men and women is largely due to childcare responsibilities. There's another word that we use here, which is the motherhood penalty, right? So four day week is in fact an opportunity which can help us balance uh, the, the, the caregiving responsibilities between, um, uh, between parents, uh, father and, and the mother. And in, in, in the article, what I've seen is that um, the, 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 the cases that we have studied, there are three cases that we have studied. The first one is Kickstarter. It's a company, the crowdfunding um, American company. They, they moved on to a four-day working week and they found that young women um, they especially found that, you know, uh, the, the responsibilities of um, child care, they found that, you know, they were doing better, especially in the early years of motherhood. There's another case of Microsoft Japan. They moved to a four day working week and women said that the stress levels and burnouts have gone down um, um, while they were doing this trial for the four day working week. The third case that we studied was um, that of Unilever. So Unilever uh, announced uh, all flex policy, which aims at uh, flexible working arrangements, which includes one of the arrangements is a shorter working week in the form of working week. And they also witnessed that, you know, the, they were able to achieve a balance in the gender roles, especially at the leadership positions. So what we are seeing is that there is a connection between a four day working week and gender pay gap. And the companies that are actually trying to do this have have have, have given us results which are encouraging. I mean, it would be especially helpful if that four day working week, if it wasn't the same day, if, you know, if the, the two members of a marriage, for example, the two partners, if they didn't have the same day off, then that would be really helpful because then the scenario is, is that, say, if my husband takes every Monday off and I'm not working every Friday, then you're also going to be better off financially because you don't have to pay for childcare four days a week, five days a week. You can only pay it three days a week. That's right. So, so, so the notion of four-day working week does not exactly mean that you know Fridays will be off for everyone or Mondays will be off for everyone. So the idea of the, I mean, the the notion of this is that you know it is utmost flexibility. So it does not also mean that you know the the company will be operating you know four days a week. The company might still operate on the customer end side or on the front end side five days a week, but the arrangements between different employees will be different in which uh, each employee will be working at max four days. The arrangements they can pick and choose. And this is where exactly the point that you mentioned that the flexibility comes in and uh, the, 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 the couples can pick different dates or uh, different days of working. Now, regular listeners will um, think that I like, well, Regular listeners will know that I like to pull the subject of artificial intelligence into nearly every conversation at the moment. But this is what the proponents of AI are saying, that we won't have to work as hard in the future and that ultimately human beings will be able to rely on robots to do uh, lots of work. And therefore, we are going to have more free time. And I can't help but see that argument paired with the growth of this enthusiasm for the four-day week, this sort of future of work research, do you think the two are rising in tandem or am I seeing links that don't exist? You're seeing the links which absolutely exist, right? So 
especially with the the, the evolving i mean pace of um, artificial intelligence tools and technologies that we are talking about at the workplace and that to the cost effectiveness of that uh, what we'll see is that there's a lot of free time that's coming up and because and with the, that we're, we're saying that the productivity will remain and you know the the free time uh, will increase but now there's a there's a caveat here what we have seen um, over years is that whenever you know productivity increases with technology you know productivity goes up and free time uh, we we get a little bit of free time uh, in terms of employees um, work schedule but this free time immediately fills up with additional work right so work never ends as they say so even if we work 5 days a week but uh, if if we want to work 6 days a week even the, the the work will expand so in fact work expands based on the deadline so sometimes you know you say that uh, i will be finishing this work in the next um, two days but sometimes if you say that okay let, let me finish this in one day and when you put that deadline a little earlier you'll see that you will be able to do a great deal of it so work does expand um depending on the time so with artificial intelligence absolutely we will have a more free time right productivity will increase uh, but the point is that we want to pass this on to the employees and not that employers coming up that you know there is more work to be done because now we have free time and you know um the the productivity has increased and you know the, the availability of time is more so AI is a feminist issue. That's what I'm going to do. I'm adopting it. It's it it's going to bring greater freedoms for women. It's going to bring greater flexibility of work and we should embrace it. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> and, and and in fact the the the, the premise of that you mentioned four day working week and gender pay gap that you're talking about. I mean, the study that we have done uh, is that you know there are various reasons for the gender pay gap which includes uh, social norms because in some countries, you know, um there are unequal opportunities for males and females likewise there are industry issues as well there are certain certain industries where women are appreciated more this is based on the nature of the business model and the industry there are some laborious industries as well um there's also an element of class ceiling where we say that you know uh, women um find it a bit difficult to reach higher level positions especially the board positions and top management positions but and the fourth one is uh, the area of child care responsibilities so the 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 piece the 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 uh, the, the research the current research says and this is i'm talking about the last decade or two the most pressing issue in terms of gender pay and the reason for that is coming from the child care responsibilities so four day working week as you said that will be a strong case to help us reduce this gap and to give an equal footing to men and women uh, who are start because what we have seen is that men and women they start at the same time but gap widens when when kids are born so i think this will, uh, will the, the the notion of four day working week will be an will play instrumental role in reducing the gender pay gap it is a constant source of conversation in our home particularly at the moment dr mansour sumro thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, dr sumro is a future of work researcher at teesside university's international business school in the uk serious food for thought there sir thank you very much indeed for joining us this is the agenda on dubai i 103.8 the uae's number one talk radio station Yep, this is the agenda and earlier this week on the program we were talking about that survey the place the UAE 22nd in an index on women's rights and equality and the Emirates ranked really highly for things like employment community safety uh, there was financial seclusion share of parliamentary seats and uh, access to justice however 
Uh, and this is sort of the weird fly in the ointment. One of the criticisms in the report was that the legal system here still has scope to improve. And that got us thinking about you know, what actually needs to change. And intriguingly, right now, uh, down in Abu Dhabi, there's an inclusion conference that started. It's the Aurora 50 Inclusion Summit. It's hosted by Agnoc. It's the first time they've done it. And the idea is they're bringing together everyone important and young people as well for a conversation around the culture of of inclusion. One of the law firms taking part is Baker McKenzie. And we're actually joined on the line now by one of their employment lawyers, Aksa Khan Sadiq, who is here to talk to us about the changes that have taken place in the legal system over the last few years. Axa, thank you very much for joining us on the line. And it feels like we've had a lot of law reforms recently. Do you think that they've improved the status of women, for example? I, I mean, there's been lots of different factors, but let's start with the family law reforms. Hi, um, it's um, Axa here. Just um, um, like you said, there have been some really interesting changes in the labour law, um, starting with the extension to maternity leave. Uh, that's been increased to 60 days from 45 days. The first 45 days are to be paid, fully paid, and the remaining 15 days are um, at half pay. But it's quite interesting because after exhausting this um, paid maternity leave, the employees are eligible to take an unpaid uh, maternity leave for 45 calendar days if uh, the mother or the infant is suffering from an illness related to pregnancy or delivery and she's unable to return to work. Um, But um, quite interestingly, the labour law also now makes provision um, for the employee to be entitled to paid maternity leave if she delivers um, early, say after six months or more of pregnancy and the baby is born, um, stillborn or um, passes away shortly after birth, then the mother can op- avail this um, maternity leave as well. Um, there is, of course, um, you've still got the nursing breaks, which we had in the previous law. And these are being applied quite flexibly by a lot of um, multinational clients that we're seeing in the market. And they are allowing, for instance, women to leave work early and uh, utilize this one hour break by Mm. doing that. Um, So um, although the employment law sets out these as minimum entitlements, what we're seeing in practice is that a lot of multinational companies are offering more, sometimes even up to six months unpaid and a couple of months of unpaid. There's also the provision of parental leave, um, five days, which either the mother, mother or the father could take, but you could effectively add this on to your statutory maternity leave to extend it. Um, I do think um, these changes are very interesting um, and a lot of employers are quite increasingly allowing remote working as well. For employees, the law for the first time actually recognises remote working. It's up to the employer and the employee to decide on the working hours and how much flexibility is given. But in practice, we are seeing... um, you know, there's there's a shift towards multinationals moving towards um, more remote working and flexibility. And I think that certainly helped a lot of women, women have a career and juggle um, family life um, at the same time. Um, so I think that's a very positive change. Uh, we've also got um, 
another provision in the law which protects women from being um, terminated uh, during their pregnancy or uh, for any maternity-related reason. And for the first time, we've had um, discrimination and harassment provisions in the law, so there's more protection offered to women. So I think there have been some very important key changes. Um, the new law yeah. also re reiterates the equal pay requirement for women who perform the same role as men. Um, so I think, you know, this uh, is very, very um, key. And the UAE is obviously um, quite increasingly showing its um, commitment to e equality and diversity. Encouraging stuff. Thank you very much for joining us on the line, AXA. Really appreciate your time. Employment lawyer there with Baker McKenzie, AXA Khan Sadiq, joining us here with a little bit of a rundown of the changes to the labour laws and how they've been helping women in the workplace. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Yeah, welcome back to the show. Good to have you with us. Let's take a look at one of my favourite quirks in the farming industry here in the UAE. It is an oyster farm in Fajera. And, and I don't know if you're new to the country, but I never would have thought there'd be a massive oyster farm in Fajera. And such is the success of Dibba Bay oysters that they've got quite literally millions of shells, which until now, they weren't quite sure what to do with. But I'm joined on the line now by Ramy Murray, who is the founder of Dibba Bay Oysters, because they come up with an eco-friendly solution. Ramy, more Morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm great, thanks. Lovely great to, to be online. Oh, it's lovely to have you with us. Thank you very much indeed. So tell me more. What is your project? What is your plan? Okay. So as you mentioned, um, we have a lot of leftover shells, uh, which is a good problem to have. Uh, a lot of happy customers. Um, and we were looking for some useful thing to do with them. So what, what we actually found um, is in, in the wild, shell, when shellfish breed, they produce larvae and that larvae swims around and it attaches to old broken bits of oyster shell in order to grow its own shell. So by that logic, if you put piles of oyster shells in back into the marine environment, you will automatically attract a lot of marine life and it will become a living oyster reef of its own. So we have gone ahead with the Dibba Bay Oyster Reef Creation Project, and we are using the repurposed shells, and we're, we're working with the Fujera government, with the Fujera Research Center and the Fujera Environment Authority. And we have a 700-meter stretch off of Dibba uh, where we, we are, were permitted to create a, a natural oyster reef. So, so what we're doing is that we're collecting the shells back from our restaurants. Uh, we've got collection points, by the way. So if you want to return your shells, you can return them to our, our two outlets in Dubai. Our, 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 we have one in Sheraton, JBR, and we have our original one down in the Fishing Harbour in Umsakim. Uh, we'll be working with partner hotels and restaurants to collect the shells back from them as well. Um, and we will be literally building this 700-meter reef out of the Dibba Bay shells, um, and then the native oyster oysters will then come and breed there and the native scallops. And it will literally be uh, the, the foundations of this wonderful new ecosystem. Oh, it sounds awesome. Are you going to have to put a bit of cement in first or are you literally just piling loads of shells on top of each other on top of Bags. each other? Well, that, that's an interesting question because there's different ways of doing this. It's been done elsewhere in the world. 
Um, but what we will be doing is the first phase, and this is very much uh, the first phase. It sounds sounds big, it's 700 meters, but when you think about the length of the Fajera coastline, uh, we will be trying different methods. So the main method we'll be doing is we'll be wrapping the shells in essentially chicken wire um, and using them as building blocks. But we will be experimenting with bits of cement and, and different ways of, of holding it down. And the, there's a whole uh, sort of scientific research project behind it. And we will prototype the best way to build the reef in this environment. And then we will look at rolling it out along the entire coastline of Fajera. How is the oyster farming world? Are you, do you grow year round up in Fajera? Yes, absolutely. This is, uh, this is one of the big uh, sort of advantages we have. We're, we, we harvest every week, twice a week, um, all year round. And so you, you can get Dibba Bay oysters anytime you like. And you started to ship abroad as well, haven't you? Yes, yes. So, uh, yes, we ship to Hong Kong and uh, we, sh- we ship out to, to Thailand. We've just started. We're starting in Singapore soon. Uh, very exciting. You'll be able to see Dibba Bay oysters all over, all over the world. Now, I have to admit, I've been trying to like oysters um, for a long time. Uh, I'm now 44. <laughs> I still don't like them. Um, so what's the best way for a non-oyster liker to, to, to get into them? Uh cook them i ah. think because i think i think the the reason some a lot of people are a bit put out by eating eating it raw it's got a very distinct texture so if if you want to get sort of uh get into oysters and you're not sure and you're not sure about the texture um certainly choose some smaller ones if you're going to eat them raw but also we we offer cooked oysters in both our outlets now and it, and it's a great sort of entry level uh, way of enjoying oysters Good source of protein. Thank you so much, Romy Murray. Lovely to have you join us on the line. The founder and CEO of Dibber Bay Oysters, who are planning uh, the a new project, which is the Oyster Reef uh, Creation Project uh, in Fajera. Uh, amazing to think of how you can collect all the shells out. I actually think I've seen one of these blocks with oyster shells before. I think you've actually got them in your restaurant. Have you got them in your restaurants, Romy? You still there? Uh, I think. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, so here. Yeah, no, I think we have some. We had some demonstration yeah. uh, bags uh, at one of the restaurants. I think we'll be putting them back. Yeah. Um. And uh, just, just, just before we go, um, I'd just like to say we we are looking for corporate sponsorship for this project. So if there is anybody out there that wants to get involved, uh, just drop us a line at info at dibabay.com. Yeah, good time to do that, obviously. Lots of uh, spotlights on, well, everyone's got a spotlight on their uh, ESF campaigns at the moment. Is that how you say it? You know, the environmental, social elements of everyone's business. Everyone's trying to be carbon neutral. And I imagine this might be one of those projects. Ramey, thank you very much indeed for your time. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to the show. Georgia Tolley here, keeping you company. And we're going to turn our attention to our sporting headlines now. I keep on golf shaming Chris and Robbie. It's perfectly okay that they go and play golf in the morning and therefore aren't able to do my sports news because strictly speaking, their shift on off script doesn't start until the afternoon and they are on air from five until eight. And I'm not bitter at all, particularly because it means we get the pleasure of Mark Archer's company. Now, he is a cricketer turned sports management specialist and he was the ideal person to fill us in on all of yesterday's Cricket World Cup action. And we're getting towards the business end now of the ICC Cricket World Cup, of course, taking part in India. And the result came in yesterday. England 
The defending champions have had such a disappointing campaign trying to defend their title they won in the UK at Lords in 2019. They won only their second game of this year's World Cup. They defeated the Netherlands by 160 runs. So a big victory in end for England, but only their second win of the campaign. England batted first. They scored 339 for nine in their 50 overs. Ben Stokes, the man that's gotten them out of trouble uh, over recent years, he scored a century. Ben Stokes scored 108 of only 84 deliveries. And there were half centuries to um, Chris Wokes with 51 and Dawid Milan with 87. So they scored 339 for nine. Um, they were in trouble early, but Netherlands, um, they dismissed the Netherlands, the Dutch team, for only 179 in reply. Three wickets each to the England spin bowlers. Moen Alley with three for 42. Adil Rakeed with three for 54. And that meant there was a big win by 160 runs for England, which gets them off the bottom of the table now. Finally! Because they're finally off the bottom of the table. They are equal with points with a number of teams. And the Netherlands, um, who have also won two games, have had a, had a nice campaign for them. One of the minnows of the um, four members. Um, good to see them having a good World Cup campaign. But it's been a terrible campaign for England. And I'd just be happy to be off the bottom of the World Cup log. We have more action today, though, don't we? We do, and it's really setting the scene for the semi-finals, uh, Georgia. The, the, the top of the table is really clear now. India, playing at home in this World Cup, have a perfect record. They've played eight, they've won eight, they've got 16 points. They are top of the table, and they will be part of the semi-finals um, in, in about a week's time. South Africa are second, uh, alongside Australia, on 12 points. They've both won six of their eight matches. So that's three of the four semi-finals. What that means is there's one spot available for a number of teams. Now, New Zealand play today against Sri Lanka. New Zealand are in pole position, but they've just lost their four. They won the first four matches of the tournament. They've just lost their last four. This is a must-win game for them today. They take on Sri Lanka and Bengaluru. And if they want to secure that fourth position, the fourth and final semi-final position, they will need to win today against Sri Lanka. In fifth place, breathing down their necks, is Pakistan. Pakistan also had four victories but New Zealand have a better net run rate, which is a clinching sort of decider. Pakistan have to play England on Saturday. So that's a tough game for Pakistan. England finding a little bit of form, but they'll fancy their chances. Also, uh, one of the the teams of the tournament, really, Afghanistan, have a really outside chance of making the semifinals. They play South Africa, who already qualified on the weekend as well. So New Zealand take on Sri Lanka today in Bengaluru. It's a must-win game for the Black Caps to try and secure that fourth position and a semi-final place in the ICC World Cup. Mark Archer, their cricketer turned sports management specialist, a regular on off script and extra time at the weekend as well. And today, our sports correspondent. Great to hear about how everything's going in the cricket there. Apart from the fact that England uh, has performed incredibly badly for the entire tournament. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.